Okay, <laughs> good to see all of you in your little boxes. Uh, so, um, as Catherine said, we'll sit for maybe just, you know, five or seven minutes, since there were a lot of questions to get through. Um, <clears throat> so take a comfortable, comfortable seat. <clears throat> Simply settle into the body, feeling yourself sitting. Maybe take a deep breath or two. Then let the, body, the breath find its own natural rhythm. Softening the eyes, relaxing the shoulders. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Be aware of thoughts as they appear in the mind. <clears throat> and simply notice them come and go without getting involved.
Well, there were a lot of interesting questions, uh, and I learned a lot from reflecting on many of them. So thank you for sending them in. Okay, first one. In the moment-to-moment -moment meditation, I can get overwhelmed by the confluence of the thought, like being angry at someone, a physical sensation, that is neck discomfort, and then the pressure of trying to note whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. I get lost and just come back to the breath, but I feel like I'm falling short of the moment, to, short of the moment to moment meditation practice. <clears throat> Are there any steps you recommend? So I think this is not an uncommon uh, situation where sometimes it feels like so much is going on at the same time that it can get confusing we don't quite know where to uh, put our attention. So a couple of simple suggestions. One is the basic guideline for practice and what we should be paying attention to is to become mindful of whatever is predominant in the moment. So even if that feels like there are many things happening, the mind will be drawn to one aspect or another and we can just uh, note the predominant object moment after moment without trying to figure it out uh, by ourselves. The mind will automatically be drawn to the predominant experience. This also points to an interesting distinction. Many of you are probably familiar with the tool that we often suggest of mental noting you know, where we put just a very soft, a whisper of a note onto the experience as a way of strengthening our connection to it. So for example, in, out, pain, tingling, vibration, hearing, thinking, like that, just noting moment after moment. And many people find this helpful either to use throughout the whole sitting or just for certain shorter periods of time to um, up the refinement of our perception. But sometimes things start happening too quickly, you know, and things are moving along so quickly that the noting feels cumbersome and, and too slow. So it's helpful to make the distinction in one's mind between noting and noticing. And the key point is to notice what's happening. And you could think of that as being a synonym for mindfulness. So it's the noticing which is important and the noting, the mental label is simply a support for that when it's, when it's helpful, when it feels appropriate. So be with what's predominant, even when there are a lot of different things going on, one thing will be in foreground, another thing will be in the background. And if it's a lot of things moving quickly, just settle into the noticing aspect rather than trying to note. Okay, next question. How to work with a greedy mind? Anybody have a greedy mind? 
<laughs> one thing, one thing to uh, keep in mind is that having a greedy mind or noticing a greedy mind does not mean that we're a greedy person. You know, and sometimes people might conflate those two because a greedy mind really is simply referring to that mental quality or that mental factor of craving, you know, the craving for something. That's what the greedy mind means. And craving in the mind, as most of you probably know, this is a deeply conditioned pattern, which is the cause of a lot of suffering in our lives. The Buddha talked of craving. This is the second noble truth. You know, the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, of suffering or unease or stress. And then he said, well, what's the cause of that? The fundamental, the underlying cause is craving. And then the third is the end of craving. And the fourth noble truth, of course, is the eightfold path. So it's to understand that this force of craving or greed in this sense is really deeply conditioned in all of us. So it's going to be there for a while. It said that craving, desire, sense desire is not uprooted until the third stage of enlightenment. You know, so for most of us, we should make some friends with it because it's going to be around. So how to work with it and uh, Almost anybody who's practiced will have quite a lot of experience with this. <laughs> First, it's to realize that it is a very strong force. And I'll just share one little story to indicate how even about something that's very small, <laughs> this craving or greed uh, can be so persistent. So I was doing a self-retreat just in my home, doing walking meditation, walking back and forth, and then the thought comes into my mind, oh, a cup of tea would be nice. Oh, wanting, wanting, kept on walking. Five steps later, oh, a cup of tea, that, that would really be nice. No, I just saw it, let it go. Another five steps, cup of tea, cup of tea, cup of tea. I don't know how long it went on. And I was getting amused by it, but it was, it was really persistent until at a certain point, oh, cup of tea, and I went for the cup of tea. <laughs> so, you know, it reminded me of a blade of grass pushing up through concrete, <laughs> you know, a really small thing, but with a big force behind it. So it's to understand that and to appreciate the power of this force in the mind, which is why it's so important to begin to get a handle on it, to begin to uh, learn how to work with it in different ways. So <clears throat> one of the ways that I work with it that I find uh, in a way it's challenging, but also feels very rewarding, uh, even with these very simple little desires. And that is, just to take small moments, little moments of renunciation. 
you know, and for Westerners, renunciation doesn't often inspire people. <laughs> you know, it feels just, you know, we tend to conflate it with deprivation, <laughs> you know, but actually there's a wonderful aspect to renunciation, that ability <clears throat> to see what's there and having the strength to say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, this isn't so, so skillful. You know, in a lot of meditation instructions and environments, there's so much emphasis on the yes. You know, yes, allow, accept, which is really a key point of the whole meditation practice to open in that way, to say yes to what's happening. However, the wise no is equally important. And this is not the no of aversion. This is the no of wisdom. You know, it's seeing something arise in the mind and realizing, no, this is not so helpful. It's not so useful. But I don't think we've exercised the no muscle very much. You know, and so I think it's really worth doing even about very small things, like a cup of tea, you know. And obviously, with things like that, there's nothing wrong with having a cup of tea. That's not, that's not the message. But it's the ability to see the force of desire, the force of craving. That's what we're saying no to. And so that's hitting on something that is fundamental uh, to having a life of greater ease and greater harmony, the ability to, to say this, the ability to actually have that momentary renunciation. And there are a million situations where we could practice this. <clears throat> a very big arena um, might be in just paying attention to the patterns of our speech. You know, I see a lot of things arise in my mind. And this one particular kind of speech I mean, in, in some situations, it's obvious to, to refrain from, you know, lying or horror speech. But one of the places I love to practice this renunciation is in the categories uh, the Buddha talked of as useless speech. You know, when we're about to say something, it's just completely useless. And yet the impetus to just let it spill out. I found it really <clears throat> both helpful <clears throat> and empowering to see it in the mind before us. No, I don't have to do that. So one of the one of the benefits of practicing these small moments of renunciation is that it's actually a conservation of energy. And we can feel it. So for example, <clears throat> Whenever I can actually say, no, I don't need to do that. It feels like a victory over Mara. You know, Mara, the, the tempter. And no, I'm not gonna buy into this. So there is, a, there is a genuine feeling of empowerment. We're strengthening uh, that place in our mind. 
So these are ways of working <coughs> with the greedy mind. One other really interesting thing to look at. This is, to me, this is really interesting. <laughs> you know, when you're going along and you have a desire for something and you're anticipating the pleasure of it, and it's really the anticipation of the pleasure that motivates us to act. It's not even often the thing itself, but the idea that, oh, this is going to be pleasurable. And that's why we go for it. So really interesting exploration would be to really look at your mind when that desire first comes and that anticipatory pleasure. And so make that the object of your awareness, your mindfulness. So you really get a sense of the force that's driving the action. You know, and you, and you can really feel it. Oh yeah, that would, that would feel good. Then after you gratify whatever it is, whether it's a cup of tea or a good meal or whatever, you know, whatever the object uh, of gratification is, after you gratify it, let's say five minutes afterwards or 10 minutes afterwards, You've had the cup of tea, you've done whatever it is that you know you were enticed to do. 10 minutes or so afterwards, check out your mind again and compare the difference between your mind before the action when you're being seduced by the anticipatory pleasure and watch your mind 10 minutes after you've experienced it. And the question that you might ask, does it make the slightest bit of difference? <laughs> so often after I've had the cup of tea or whatever it was, 10 minutes after it's over, it did not bring me lasting happiness. <laughs> you know, it was a moment hit, a moment's hit, it felt good. And then it's gone and it really didn't make any difference at all of whether I had gone for it or not. But please don't believe me. I would, I would really invite you just to check it out for yourself because the conditioning of desire and craving is so strong. But what I found that it's mostly in looking ahead that it's so seductive. When I look back on the fulfillment of many of these little desires, it didn't mean anything. And so I just find that understanding based on really looking for yourself. Again, not, it's not believing it as a theory, just to take some interest in your mind before and after. Um, and this is just a way of exploring and working with the greedy mind. Uh, so it gets pretty interesting because it's working with a very fundamental power, very fundamental habit of mind. Okay. 
one could go on, I could go on a long time talking about the greedy mind, but we'll move on. What is the best thing to do when you experience doubt about your meditation experience? Specifically, doubting that your experience of awareness is nothing more than experience that is fabricated or interpreted through a concept that you place on top of your experience, similar to how someone might believe in a religious idea such as God or heaven and attribute experiences to that idea because they've read and been taught about it. Okay, so just the doubt in terms of meditation experience and whether it's genuine or it's just through the filter of some concepts. Another question, what happens when you lose faith in the practice? or in the idea of freedom. The last one, are the benefits of a long-term meditation practice directly proportional to the number of hours spent meditating or is there a plateau? Okay, so all of these questions really have to do with the unfolding of the, traje the trajectory of practice over many years. And I know many of you <coughs> have been practicing for many years, so you'll be familiar with this. There are many, many ups and downs, as you know. You know, one day the sitting will be great, calm, concentrated, body feels at ease. The very next sitting, it can be restless, bored, a lot of thinking. And it just goes up and down like that. It is to say that with all the ups and downs over time, the slope of the curve is going up. You know, so after five years of practice or 10 years of practice, even though there's still ups and downs, but we can see the progress and the deepening of the mindfulness and the concentration. But it doesn't mean that that progress is linear in the sense of just upward. You know, it's up and down and up and down, but the slope is going up. And then there are times when we do hit plateaus. And I've experienced that many times over all these years. We're going along, things seem to be going fine. And then it's like we hit the doldrums. <clears throat> and it just feels like we're going over the same stuff again and again and again. And that's when doubt can arise and, you know, we can get discouraged, you know, in these times of a plateau in our meditation. At one time I was, this, my India days, I was on a retreat and I was in one of these places. It was just nothing, it felt like nothing much was happening. And I started to get discouraged and judging myself, judging my practice. Then I saw what was going on in my mind. I gave myself a little talking to. I said, Joseph, just sit and walk. Sit and walk, that's your job. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. You know, so it was, it was kind of a surrender to the Dharma, a surrender to the unfolding, knowing that, I'm gonna anthropomorphize this a little bit, the Dharma knew better than I did how things should unfold. And if I could just trust that, and I could do my part, which was just to sit and walk and sit and walk, 
And it was so helpful because then I stopped all the self-judgment and I stopped the doubt. I just sat and walked. And after some time, I got out of the doldrums and I could feel the practice unfolding again. So it's important to recognize those times and to recognize uh, the doubts or the discouragement that might come up and not by <clears throat> not by into that we really just need to continue doing the practice and, and have that trust that the Dharma will lead us onward, which it does. I've seen it in myself and I've seen it in thousands of yogis. Uh, <clears throat> so I have a lot of confidence in that. It's something like, have you ever walked in a labyrinth? You know, you go in and you're going toward the center and then the, the labyrinth path leads you away from the center and then around a little bit and then toward the center, away from the center. So it could well feel that in those times when the path is leading, seems to be leading away from the center, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? But really we just have to keep walking because the path is leading to the center through all those changes of direction. Um, so maybe if you can keep that in mind, it'll it'll encourage you just to, to stay with it. But then the question is, <clears throat> at those times, if we do get caught up in doubt, you know, doubt about ourselves, our ability, doubt about the practice, how do we work with doubt? And of all the hindrances, you know, desire and aversion and sleepiness, restlessness, doubt is the most problematic. Because all the others, we can learn how to, to see through it. You know, it's like if there's desire, okay, there's a certain filter on the mind, but we can still be connected to the object. But when there's doubt, that like removes us from the ball field. We're not even playing anymore. We, we've, we've really just stopped our practice if we don't know how to relate to doubt skillfully. And the image that's in the text to describe the doubting mind is so apt. It's described as the thorny mind. You know, when doubt is persistent, it's just like a thorn that keeps jabbing. You know, which is very unpleasant, very discouraging. And often, if people don't know how to work with it, they give up because of the doubt. But it is very workable, you know, if we know how to do it. The trick is seeing through that very wise sounding voice in the mind, because that's the voice of doubt. It's very skillful. It's a skillful actor. You, it's you know, very, very compelling. So we believe it. You know, oh, this is not the right time for me. Oh, this isn't working. Oh, this and that. You know, and it's talking to us in such a convincing way that would believe what it's saying, and we are not recognizing it as doubt. We think it's wisdom. 
So this is the key point. Doubt comes masquerading as wisdom, right? But if we understand that and we see that, simply by recognizing these different kinds of thoughts, oh, doubt, I see you. I recognize you as being doubt. When we can do that, then we're no longer seduced into the belief that what it's saying is true. And we just see it as the doubting mind, another thought arising and passing in the moment, and we go on with our practice. It does not have that compelling force in mind, but it takes recognizing it. So what I would suggest for those of you for whom doubt comes up from time to time, see if you can become very precise about the particular kinds of doubt that each of you have. Because for each of us, the doubt may be expressed in a slightly different way. So we have to recognize what our own particular doubting voice is saying. And to recognize it so clearly that you could almost write it out in a sentence. You know, and just as a few examples, um, the practice isn't working, or I can't do this, or whatever, things like that. Because if we can recognize the doubt really clearly, that helps us to recognize it as doubt. And then we just put an in, doubt, 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 and it really has lost all its power. Does this seem clear? Because working with doubt is really important. If we don't understand it, it can be a huge obstacle on the path. And yet if we do understand it, it is super workable and it's not a problem. Okay. So the next one was really interesting and it did make me reflect a lot. <clears throat> How to deal with feelings of self-loathing, depression and self-unworthiness. How to deal with shame and guilt. Okay, so now we're really getting into some really difficult and painful uh, mind states and emotions. So first to say, I am not a trained psychologist. So there are dimensions to this that I may not be addressing. But of course, these feelings do come up in meditation. And from a meditative point of view, we can come to some deeper understandings of them and how to work with them. So it seemed to me that the feelings of shame and guilt may be some of the emotions underlying feelings like the self-loathing or self-hatred. You know, when we have shame about something or guilt about something, so when I was reflecting on the question, I started thinking about the different conditions that may give rise to shame and then how to work with those different conditions. So one obvious 
cause for shame to arise when it when we've done something contrary to our own values you know we've done committed some unskillful action and we recognize it that it was unskillful you know and then just in thinking about it afterwards we can have this strong sense of shame and the second kind or the second condition uh, i i just called internalized shame you know and this is this is a feeling that may be conditioned from childhood you know and may have nothing to do with unskillful actions it's just some you know unfortunate childhood conditioning and so we grow up with this internalized feeling okay so how to work first with uh, the shame that comes from our own actions you know when we've done something that has been unskillful so the challenge in question in these situations i think is is to reflect on and ask what wisdom is to be gleaned from this very painful emotion and i think this is probably not a question that is frequently asked but i had a very strong experience of this i'm going to share a shame story that goes back like goes back 40 years uh but it's still it's still quite vivid in my mind so i was on my first retreat with saida upandita it come to ims and as i've mentioned before you know very demanding teacher very formal a lot of a lot of pressure in that and then one time i went in for an interview and for whatever reason whatever was going on in my mind i just really exaggerated something about what i was experiencing and he looked at me and he said that isn't true and it was like <laughs> it was just I don't know if you can imagine what this is this great master basically saying that I just lied. <laughs> and I realized that what he said was accurate, you know. So I left that interview. I was just mortified. There was so much shame and self-judgment. And for a few days I was processing this, you know, just going on and on and just, it is a really painful feeling but something really important came out of it because i was on retreat and so after i worked through kind of all the shame and the, the the judgment i was watching my mind and i was just trying to understand well, well what just happened and i realized what was useful in that situation and that emotion for me first was just highlighting that yes what i had said was really unskillful it wasn't wasn't accurate it wasn't true but even on a more subtle level 
what was interesting. And this took some days to come to. It was not, it was not immediate. I realized that I was glad to have seen that my mind was capable of doing that. Because if you had asked me beforehand in meeting with a teacher who you, you know, totally respect, you know, and venerate, would you ever say something that's not true? And before that happened, no, I, that's not something my mind would ever do. Well, surprise, <laughs> it did do it. And that was very freeing for me to see, because it's really cutting through a certain self-delusion that I had, that, oh yeah, my mind would never do something like that. And because of that delusion, I could be repeating that same kind of behavior without really acknowledging it. Because no, no, this, this is something I would never do. But Sayadaw called me on it. He said, no, that's not true. And so the fear, the shame that I had revealed something about my mind, which was very freeing. Because once we realize, oh yeah, our minds are capable of all this, then it's easier to keep an eye out for that kind of unskillful behavior. Are you following this? <laughs> this is kind of a convoluted story, but you know, it was really powerful. Uh, and the underlying point I want to make is that as painful as that emotion is, there's a lot we can learn from it. There's a lot we can learn from our own minds. But it's challenging because shame is a particularly painful feeling. And more commonly, I think, we're either drowning in it, you know, and just lost in all that self-judgment. And, or we're just trying to just get rid of it in some way, distract ourselves from it because it's so painful, and we don't learn anything from it. So I would just suggest, and it's challenging, it's, this is not easy to do because it's so painful, but there's a lot of wisdom embedded in that experience. It's reminding us that our actions have consequences. Our actions affect other people, our actions affect our own minds. And to have that lesson reinforced throughout our lives, uh, hopefully it doesn't have to come from shame all the time, it can come from uh, more uplifting reminders. But that reminder that our actions have consequences, this is a huge lesson because I think very often we're just going through our lives acting out our conditioning. And maybe we're not paying as much attention as we should to the quality of our actions. What are the motivations behind them? Are they skillful? Are they unskillful? So this is all part of our growth you know, and our greater freedom. I think what's also helpful to remember in all this <clears throat> is that 
this situation, we are not unique. Unless you were born a saint, I think all of us have done things in our lives that we're ashamed of. You know, where we've done unskillful things and when we become aware of it in one way or another, so that feeling of feeling ashamed about something we've done is going to come up. And sometimes it may be about something really big and maybe something that to other people might feel really small, but we know, you know, we we understand that it was unskillful. So just, just as a few reference points from the Buddhist texts, you know, one of the stories uh, from the Buddhist time, uh, there was this one guy who killed 999 people before somehow he crossed paths with the Buddha and the Buddha through his, uh, the magic of his enlightenment, you know, got him on the path and this guy ended up becoming fully enlightened. But can you imagine what he was feeling from the time that it was reflected back to him by the Buddha and he became fully enlightened in that period in between, there must have been incredible feelings of shame, you know? And then the Tibetan Milarepa, I don't know that you know his story, but before he became enlightened, he through some kind of psychic powers, he uh, caused the deaths of a lot of his relatives who had done him harm, you know? All of this is to say, hopefully you haven't gone around killing people, but even if that were the case, it's possible to learn from it, you know, and it's, it's possible to actually come to a place of freedom. So even though it's challenging, if that feeling is strong for whatever reason, can we see it or understand it as a loud ringing mindfulness bell? It's that bad emotion is telling us something. And it's telling us something about the quality of our actions and the impact our actions have had either on ourselves or other people or both. So we can really transform, you know, this this really difficult emotion, we can transform it into a liberating wisdom. It takes a lot of interest and a lot of courage to do this. You know, and so recognizing that if at any time, you know, this emotion is what's happening, see if you can call up that sense of interest and courage. And watch to see that it doesn't morph into what in, in other Buddhist contexts uh, is called the near enemy of shame, which could be the feeling of guilt, you know? These are two different feelings. And I worked with guilt, not, not so much in that situation, but in others, you know, and reflecting on things that I had done. And at a certain point, 
again, it was on retreat, was coming up really strongly in my mind. And it piqued my interest. What is going on here? Why is this feeling of guilt so strong? And I realized through, through looking directly that guilt is really an ego trip because it's saying I'm so bad with an emphasis on the I. It's just strengthening the sense of self. And there's a big difference in our hearts and minds between guilt and regret. So by saying guilt is an ego trip, I don't mean to say that we should not take responsibility for our actions, but guilt is not a useful response. It's actually quite unskillful because it's just strengthening the ego self. But if we can have that morph into regret or remorse where we're acknowledging what we've done, so we're taking responsibility, but without that self-laceration, right? And then we respond in whatever way is appropriate. It's possible to make amends. We do it with the people involved. If it's just an internal process, you know, of asking forgiveness for it. If it leads us to the strength of, no, I'm not going to do that again. So there's a wisdom in regret and remorse that is not present in guilt. Um, so I think it's really helpful to begin to sort all of this out. Okay, just with regard to the deeply internalized guilt that may have come from childhood. So this is a whole different matter because this is not arising because of something we've done. It's actually arising because of things done to us you know, in, in some unskillful way. If we can recognize it as such and frame it, just frame the feeling with mindfulness, seeing it and understanding to some extent where it comes from, and come to a place of acceptance of the feeling so that we're not fighting and we're not struggling with it, that provides the space for that feeling to arise and pass away. If we're struggling and fighting with it, it actually locks it in. So if this is a deeply internalized feeling from childhood conditioning, it may come up a lot, but it is still just a feeling in the moment. And we can learn to relate to it in a way that is much more spacious. And a phrase that a Tibetan teacher used, which I think encapsulates this attitude, uh, that, this just was felt so skillful to me. He wasn't talking so much about shame, but other like emotions. He said, it's real, but not true. And I thought that really captures it because we're acknowledging the reality of our present experience. Yes, this is real, and it's not true. And so that's what gives us the doorway to some freedom with it, uh, and to hold both. And I think that's the balance. Last thing to say about this was a big question with a long answer. Uh, the last thing to say is that with this 
internalized, deeply conditioned shame, it may be that um, a therapeutic you know, environment could be helpful and really working on some of that early conditioning you know, in therapy. So that also is another avenue of approach. Okay. <laughs> Next question. Where am I? My practice starts out with a single pointed focus on the breath and then a body scan. And then I focus on my whole body at once. I feel a tingling all over my body, which is very calming. If the sensations fade, I refocus and try to stay in this state. Is there something that I might be doing to go deeper? Well, this is a really important question because it points to one of the most uh, pointed teachings of the Buddha. <laughs> and it, just whenever I reflect on this or say it, kind of makes me sit up straight <laughs> because it's so. Buddha said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. Whoa. <laughs> At least for myself, I have a little way to go. <laughs> because, you know, this conditioning is just, it's almost hardwired. Of course we want what's pleasant. And of course we want to get rid of what's unpleasant. And this may even be uh, the product of evolution. But as, as a scientist friend of mine said, evolution programs us for survival, not for liberation. <laughs> you know? So even though it may be very deeply conditioned, you know, still if we're considering what frees the mind, this is the point to look at. And mindfulness is such an amazing quality of the mind that can ha actually help us relate to these two aspects, universal aspects of our experience. Some things are pleasant, some things are unpleasant. This is our life. So it's, it's not that those two aspects are gonna go away, but how we relate to them, that's the essence of our practice. And mindfulness, it's really quite amazing. So for example, with those nice tingly sensations, yeah, they're very pleasant when that happens in practice. Can we be mindful of them without the wanting them to continue? Because that's just a kind of attachment, attachment to the pleasant. In being mindful, we are experiencing the pleasantness. So it's not that we're pushing pleasantness away. It's just that we're not holding on. We're not attached to it. So this is... 
<laughs> this is a fine line, you know, in our practice and in our lives. But it's it's really worth exploring because it will um, it will give you an increasingly deeper sense of the power of mindfulness and how it leads to freedom. Because when we can be mindful, oh yeah, pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, and we're just open to experiencing unpleasant, coming to that place where it's okay. It's okay to feel unpleasant, but that's not our usual condition. Usually something unpleasant comes and I wanna get rid of it. So this is, in some way, this is the essence of the practice. Um, And it might be interesting at times, you could practice really in two ways. Either when there's something noticeably pleasant or noticeably unpleasant, you know, and using those, those experiences as a time to practice, you know, reminding oneself, pleasant, okay, pleasant. Okay, just let me feel it, not holding on. Just being open, being spacious, letting it do whatever it does. Maybe it'll get stronger, maybe it'll get weaker, maybe it'll disappear. That doesn't matter because what we're practicing is non-attachment. We're not practicing to have certain experiences. I want to repeat that (laughs) because that is the key point. We are not practicing for certain experiences, even though we often are, (laughs) you know, we're practicing for something. But really to reflect, no, what we're practicing is to be free of attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. That's the practice. So we can use these times that are particularly pleasant or unpleasant to practice what is the essence. But we have to remember and call to mind what the essence is, because it's very easy to be seduced into thinking that a pleasant sitting is a good one and a painful sitting, oh, I I just had a terrible sitting. You know, if we were sitting in some kind of bliss or ease, Somebody asked you, how was this? Oh, my sitting was great. (laughs) That's our usual way of assessing our experience. And it's incorrect. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I'm pounding this home a little bit, but it is is the essence of it. So I, I, I just wanted to emphasize that. So not not holding on to pleasant sensations. Okay, this next, these are next few questions. Um, This is gonna be another long response because uh, these set of questions uh, touch on something that's just central to the Buddhist teachings and to liberation and has so many different subtle aspects. I have practiced mindfulness meditation intermittently over the past two years. 
I really struggle with distancing or freeing myself from the concept of self. Any suggestions? How do you, this is not a question. How do you balance knowing yourself, life story, abilities, traits, interests, etc., and deepening insight into non-self? Our culture really emphasizes self, especially for career. How do you balance self and not self? And then what's the difference between knowing the walking and walking without the eye? Okay. As we all know, just like attachment and aversion, the concept of self is really deeply conditioned. I mean, you could go up to anybody on the street and say, is there a self? <laughs> Do you have a self? Everybody will say yes. <laughs> yeah, this is our normal way of living and understanding things. Of course it's self. So that concept, until we're quite far along the path, is going to be there and it's going to be strong. You know, this view of self. So first thing to say is even when we hear the teachings about non-self and, you know, it's not really clear to us or a little bit confusing, or we hold it up as an ideal, uh, it's not to struggle with it because the struggle just entangles us further. The idea is to take interest in it and to begin to understand both what it's referring to and how it's created. You know, how does, how does this concept of self come to be if it's not there in the first place? So that's an interesting question. Okay, the term self, just the word, the word self is simply a designation or a word for something. So it's a word that's pointing to something. The self is not a thing in itself. It's pointing to something. So then the question is, what is it pointing to? When we use that term, which we do, conventionally speaking, and I'm not suggesting we stop using it, it's convenient. So when we use the term self, or trying to understand it, we have to ask, well, what is that term actually referring to? And in the Buddhist context, it's pretty simple. The term self is a designation for the changing mind-body process. And of course, the whole meditation is the exploration of this mind-body process. So just like the term river is a designation for the phenomenon of flowing water through banks. Right? So it's the flowing water that the term river refers to. And that river is not a thing in itself apart from the flowing water. It's just 
It's just a referent or a rainbow. You know, I've used these examples often. A rainbow appears in the sky, beautiful. We all love to see a rainbow. But what's a rainbow? A rainbow is an appearance of certain elements of air and light and moisture coming together in a certain way. And a rainbow appears. So the appearance is there, and we all have the experience of rainbow, but rainbow is not something in itself. It's just an appearance arising out of conditions. So the question really is both how this concept of self and the felt sense of it comes to be. And it's that second part which is really important because we all feel like there's a self, right? It's not, it's not just some abstraction that's disconnected from our experience. So where does this felt sense of something that's not really there, how does that come about? And also how the concept of self can be useful because it is useful at times. So the simplest way of seeing how the felt sense of self comes to be, and I'm sure you've experienced this many times in your practice, is there's a flow of mind-body experiences, thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations. So in any moment, when there is an identification with the object. So a thought arises in the mind. The thought is impersonal, but a thought arises and for almost everybody, there's this almost automatic identification with the thought. I'm thinking, my thought. So this process of identification is its own process. Right? So the process of identifying with something is itself selfless. <laughs> However, that process is what creates the felt sense of an I. I'm thinking, I'm hurting, I'm happy, I'm sad. You know, all of these experiences are impersonal arising out of conditions and yet because this process of identifying with them is so habituated so over and over again we're just creating this felt sense of an i so just this is not hard to see at least occasionally just notice when you're sitting Notice the difference between the experience of being lost in a thought and being aware that a thought is happening. The lost in a thought is when we're identified with it. Aware that a thought is happening is seeing the impersonal nature of the thought. 
It's just we're sitting and aware and a thought arises and passes away without any identification at all. And that will give you an immediate sense of the difference between or an understanding of how the felt sense of self comes to be and how we can be free of it. And we have countless thoughts during the day, so there are endless opportunities to practice this. Okay, there's another way to see how the sense of self is so deeply, uh, deeply conditioned in us. So take the walking, the walking meditation. So when we're walking, you know, just feeling the movement and the touch. And this, this is an experiment for you to make, and I hope, I hope you'll do it because I found it to be very revealing. So you're walking, and even as you're being mindful of the movement and touch, see if you notice a very subtle overlay of an image of foot or leg. Right, and it's not—it's not in the front of the mind. It's just—I uh, don't know the right word. This may be the wrong word, but it's coming to mind. Diaphanous, <laughs> just something that is barely there, but there. You know, I've noticed this when I'm walking. It's—I'm feeling this. I'm feeling the movement. But somewhere in the mind is this, this subtle overlay of this image or concept, foot or leg. So when that's there, it's a very easy step, almost an automatic one, to my foot, my leg. And right there, the sense of self is back, right? Foot and leg belong to me. So one way to contrast the experience of walking in a selfless way with the experience of walking when there is this subtle overlay of that image and concept and then all of a sudden foot, leg, my foot, my leg, is when you're walking, to, to frame the experience in terms of the elements that the Buddha talked about. You know, and in those days and in Buddhist language, talk about earth, air, fire, water elements. And they're really just shorthand for different experiences. So air element is movement, you know, or pressure. Earth element is hardness. So we, we just use earth element, air element as a shorthand pointing to those experiences of hardness, of movement, of softness, whatever. What I found in walking, I just started making the mental note. You know, for some periods of time, I would just be noting air or air element as I moved, earth element as I touched, air, earth, air element, earth element. And it was really striking because 
unlike the notion of foot or leg, it's very unlikely that our mind would say, my air element, my earth element. <laughs> you know, our mind doesn't go there. And so then we're dropping into the impersonal nature of those sensations. They're selfless. They're just arising out of the conditions of the body and the movement, you know, and the touching the ground. Completely impersonal. No I, no self is involved at all. And it's pretty dramatic. And it doesn't take years of practice to experience it. You know, we don't have to have any super amount of concentration. It's just remembering to make that shift in how we're experiencing it, of how we're framing the experience. So this can be really helpful. Okay. So very recently, just in the last week or so, I've been reflecting on a way of understanding why the sense of self is so incredibly seductive. The world is running on that concept. It's like everybody, you know, mostly everybody is just moving through their lives centered around the sense of I, the sense of self. So I was trying to, given kind of the whole Buddhist teaching, and, and this, is, this is really key to the Buddhist teachings on awakening, on freedom, understanding selflessness. Why is it so seductive? So I was reading this book, I just happened to come across this book, and I just got to the first few pages. <laughs> Um, and it was a book on what is called complexity theory. And the unpredictable nature of emergent properties. Now you can see why I only got to a few pages. <laughs> because it is it really was pointing something to me. So what does emergent properties mean? It means that you have a collection of elements, these elements in working together create something greater than the sum of its parts. Right. So we can take many different examples, but just take the example of a car. You know, the car is just made of, you know, all these many, many parts. If you laid them out on the ground, if you laid the parts out on the ground, there'd be no car. It would just be these pieces. But you put the pieces together in a certain way and the emergent properties of a car emerges. The fact that you can get into it and drive someplace. You could never tell what those emergent properties are from just looking at the parts, right? But in coming together, all of a sudden, there's a new level of experience. So this is where it all ties in. When I read that, 
I thought, oh, the sense of self is really describing the emergent properties of the basic elements of this mind and body, of the physical elements, all the mental qualities, consciousness. So these are just, these are like the parts of the car. You know, these are just the elements of what we call self. And the elements by themselves, you know, if we laid them out, it would not constitute what we recognize as being a person. But when they are working together, as they are in our lives as human beings, these, el these basic elements of physical sensations, mind states, consciousness, when these basic elements come together, the emergent property of what we call self, of who we recognize, oh yeah, that's, that's who this is. So self in this way is a designation for the emergent properties of the basic elements. And there's a, there's a great little story of Nasruddin, who is this Sufi teaching figure, wise man, crazy man, fool, and lots of stories. He went into the bank one day, wanted to cash a check. The bank teller says, well, show me some identification. And he's looking, he doesn't have any. And then he pulls a mirror out of his pocket, looks at it and says, yep, that's me. That's what we do. <laughs> you know, we recognize the emergent properties of the basic elements as being self. So on that level, it's real. You know, the self is real because it's describing what has emerged from the working together of all the elements. What's interesting though, is that this concept of self-describing the emergent properties does not tell us anything about the basic elements which have gone into it. And it's on the level of the basic elements that we see impermanence, that we see the dukkha aspect, the unreliability aspect, which is not necessarily apparent when we're using the idea of self to describe the emergent property of how we move through the world. So this is a phrase that I've used very often in the teachings. Again, it comes from a Tibetan teacher where he says, the self is real, but not really real. And I think it's pointing to these two levels. You know, the self is real as an emergent property of the different elements, but it's not really real because when we drop into the experience of the elements in themselves, we see the selfless, impersonal nature of it all. Now, why is that important? Because when we see the underlying reality, 
just of the changing, impersonal, impermanent nature of the sensations, thoughts, emotions, feelings, everything, all of those basic elements, it begins to weaken our attachment to them because we see that they're constantly changing. From that experience, then as we're living our life in the realm of the emergent property of going through the life as a self and as a being, which on that level, those concepts are fine, but having understood the elements which gave rise to them, we can live that life with a lot greater freedom and a lot less suffering because we're not attached to it. How are we doing? This is, <laughs> uh, this is the first time I've been talking about this. So uh, I'm kind of trying all this out on you. <laughs> At some point you can let me know, did this work? Did this make sense? Not. But when I read this whole, this whole description of complexity theory and emer unpredictable emergent properties, something just clicked in my mind. And I said, oh yeah, well, that's why this belief in self is so seductive because it does refer to something, but not what's fundamental. So, okay. <laughs> I get very excited about all this stuff. <laughs> Next question. Because this is, this is uh, I've been meditating for decades and have a daily practice. At age 85, I am experiencing memory loss and have been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's and mild cognitive, cognitive disorder. I find myself more anxious in general and trying to adjust to the losses I confront like moving to assisted living and giving up my independence, giving up driving my car, no longer as active in my artist community, no longer painting as I once did, the loss of connection with my husband who has severe dementia, all being the impending loss of my own mind and to some degree my body. My question is how can I use my practice to address this? How can one use the mind to deal with the loosing of, one, of the mind. How do I accept such tremendous loss with grace? How do I address the anxiety when I'm too overwhelmed to sit for long? So this is, that's important question. You know, it really touches on just such deep things, you know, of life and aging and death. So just as I was thinking about it and reflecting on this, this whole process of aging and decline, um, just a few different reflections came to mind. First, uh, to start with, to really stay present in the moment, especially at this stage, the stage that was described where kind of it looks like it's you know the intensity is looming on the horizon but kind of the the full experience 
has not yet has not yet arisen. I think it's really important to stay with one's present experience and watch the thoughts that are coming that trigger the fear or anxiety. Right? Because in the moment, things might be okay, reasonably okay. But then certain thoughts come, you know, anticipating what's coming or anticipating the future and creating this whole story and scenario in our minds. And depending on the particular kinds of thoughts, and there could be a wide range of thoughts. Some, some could be really looking at the situation with clarity and balance and just figuring out, okay, well, what, what are the next steps? Or certain kinds of thoughts could just trigger tremendous fear not helpful i mean it doesn't it doesn't resolve anything and it just creates a lot of suffering for ourselves in the moment so it's really helpful and interesting to watch how thoughts trigger emotions and this happens not only in the situation you know that i just described but all throughout our life this relationship of thought to emotion is really interesting to watch. Because the thought may be about something that is not actually happening in the moment. And yet, just having the thought can create, you know, powerful emotions, you know, of distress. So if we can catch the thoughts, if we can catch the particular thoughts that trigger the fear, that trigger the anxiety and see them, oh, this is just a thought. This is just a thought now and come back to the actual present experience. So that's a first step, you know, in this whole process. In a larger picture, you know, as we might be looking ahead and seeing, okay, what are the things that might happen? I think it's really helpful to remember um, that certain parts of the mind may show decline and other parts of the mind not. That it's not kind of a universal move towards decline. So I'll just give you a few examples. I had one friend a few years older than myself uh, who I think he had Lewy body dementia. Uh, you know, and so it was in cognitive physical decline. Uh, and it was, it was very clear to him and to his family and his friends. But it was so interesting and he was a long-time practitioner, you know, and teacher. It was so interesting, even when in so many areas of conversation, you could see the decline. As soon as we started having a Dharma discussion, it's like that part of his mind came alive. And we would have this really clear communication. And it was just so interesting to see, yeah, the mind has different, you know, part is exactly the right word, but, you know, it has different capacities 
And it may be that some capacities decline and others don't. So I'll give you another example. Uh, there was a very well-known Cambodian monk. His name was Mahagosananda. And he had done amazing work in Cambodia, you know, after the Pol Pot, you know, horror. Uh, and he would go leading peace walks, uh, you know, and through minefields to try to, you know, address, address all the landmines that were there. So he was doing amazing work. And his main practice was metta, was loving kindness uh, through his life. So over the course of his life, he had so cultivated, you know, this quality of metta. And I remember one time I was teaching out at Spirit Rock in California and he came to visit and he was already in quite an advanced state of cognitive decline and not really connecting on that level. But his whole being was radiating loving kindness. So he, it, it was like he was luminous with love, even though his mind, you know, on the cognitive, maybe the intellectual level, you could really see, you know, a lot of that was gone. But there was this whole other part that was just so incredibly beautiful and connecting. So I think it's important to just recognize that, that even as we see limitations and decline in one area, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the whole of our being. There are, there are other aspects and we might want to really explore that even before, you know, there has been a great degree of the cognitive decline. And mm -hmm. just, just to reflect, oh, well, what are the qualities that can still be here and will still be here, you know, and, and cultivate them? Um, in a way, in looking forward, you know, to our aging process and, we're all in the queue. <laughs> you know, it's this this is just what happens. It'd be really helpful just to grow our capacity to look realistically at what we can do and what we can't do. Because we will be losing different abilities. You know, and for for each of us will be different, but for sure, you know, at, at a certain age, for almost everybody, we will be losing, whether it's physical ability or mental ability. So I think it's really helpful if we can come to an acceptance of the fact that that is gonna happen in one way or another and just have a very realistic view. Okay, I can do this now, but I can't do this. You know, it's kind of similar to how we might adjust to some physical disability where we just can't do what we used to do. Okay, so then we just recognize that and say, okay, this is the situation and I can just do this and not that. So 
I think with a certain amount of reflection on all this and practice of, you know, awareness and honesty with oneself, I think it's possible to go through these, this decline in one way or another, really with a sense of grace and less a sense of struggle. Um, and we'll each, we each have to find our own way. Obviously, people have their own unique situation, and some may be more challenging or less challenging. But I just wanted to put some of these ideas out as, as a general framework. And in terms of working with the fear, you know, as we look ahead and see what might be coming down the road, the fear of change, the fear of impermanence, comes from our attachment to things staying a certain way. So it's not that the fear is inherent in the change. The fear arises because we're attached to it being a certain way. And to me, this is a very important understanding because it gives us agency over our own suffering. If the fear were inherent in the changes that take place, so that would be unfortunate. But in fact, the fear is arising because of attachment in our mind to things staying a certain way. That's something we do have agency over, you know, and we can practice being with even difficult situations, as I, as I was saying earlier, if there's aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. Now, I'm not suggesting this is easy. You know, with really challenging situations, you know, it's, it's challenging to, okay, can I be accepting of this? Can I be with this? without aversion, without struggle, that this is how it is. So this is a powerful practice, you know, and even though, you know, I think it was mentioned, the question was difficult to uh, sit for long at this time, or at this stage of life, it's almost like one's whole life is a sitting, you know, and whether you formally sit or not, of course, if you can, it definitely will be helpful. But just bringing mindfulness and awareness and interest and investigation to the experience that we're going through. As I say, it, it's, it's universal. It's what we all will go through. Uh, so to learn how to be with it and to practice being with it, I think um, it's, a it's a tremendous challenge, but a, also a tremendous opportunity uh, to really live, you know, in these in the last years of our lives, really with a lot of with a lot of grace and uh, and peace. Uh, so there's a lot. It's a very rich arena of practice and understanding.
uh, how are we doing for time? Okay, so <laughs> it is 8.35. I did have the thought, since this is the last session of this, uh, I'd be happy to go on for another 10 minutes or so for those who would like to stay. And if you can stay, of course, uh, feel free to uh, sign off. Um, but maybe uh, we could take a few questions you could write into the Q&A. Uh, I see there are a few already. Um, let me just take another few minutes. So I think Catherine will read some of those questions. person writes, I really enjoyed the discussion about emergent properties and the self, but I'm wondering what happens if we are attached to the emergent property itself rather than the underlying fundamentals. Say again, if the, she wonders what's, the person wonders what happens if what? If we are attached to the emergent property itself, rather than the underlying fundamentals. Yeah, I, I think mostly we are attached to the emergent property. I think that that's where we get caught because it's in that emergent property. It's like from that basic elements, what emerges is the being that we are, you know? And so we're going from the level of elements to the level of a functioning being operating in the world. And so this is our life. And I think that's where the sense of self is so strong. Um, going to the level of the elements, it's on that level that it's easier to see the impersonal nature of them so as I as I said earlier, we can begin to notice that process of identifying with a thought or identifying with an emotion. So that that can be pretty obvious to us in our practice, you know, as we're being mindful. Uh, whereas it's not so clear, or it's it's not so workable to deal with the self on the level of the emergent property. Because what has emerged is that sense of a being. And that's why the meditation, by going to the elemental level and seeing how we identify with various things, can then, as we're operating in this world as a being, as an individual being, we can do it with that deeper understanding. Is this so... <laughs> Yeah, so, so we, can, we can live on this level of being with less attachment because of our insight on the elemental level. Thank you, Joseph. Another question comes in, this person writes, why is guilt um, the near enemy of shame? Could you elaborate? Right, so I use that, that term near enemy uh, loosely because I haven't actually come across the term near enemy with reference to shame and guilt. 
usually that term near enemy is referred to different Bhavama Viharas, like the near enemy of um, metta is attachment. Or as I said the other week, uh, last week, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. So I was just, I was using that term, uh, which I didn't find you know, in the text, but it seemed analogous because guilt could, guilt could be conflated with shame. You know, if we're ashamed of something, it's almost like just half a step to feeling guilty about it. You know, of course I should feel guilty. Look what I did, you know, but it's missing the point that it's a different feeling than the shame. And that the, the, the feeling of guilt is unskillful. Even though shame is unpleasant, more than unpleasant, it can be painful, it doesn't make it unskillful. You know, it's arising, not, not in that due to the early conditioning, but when it arises from something we've done unskillful. So shame can actually be a wholesome mind state even though it's really painful. Whereas guilt is unwholesome, it's unskillful. Um, and so I was just trying to make the distinction and to see that from the feeling of shame when it, when it does come from something we may have done, a much more appropriate frame would be, as I mentioned, regret or remorse. And even just in those words, can you hear the difference just emotionally between guilt and regret? It is a very different, very different quality. You know, regret or remorse, there's some space there, you know, to work with it and, and uh, respond in an appropriate way. Guilt is just, we just get locked into this, uh, as I said, self-laceration. It's not helpful and it's a lot of suffering. So when I was working with guilt, and then I saw it, when, when I really first saw it as an ego trip, you know, in Buddhist, uh, in the text, a Mara represents kind of the embodiment of delusion. And often the phrase, you know, Mara, I see you, when you see through something. So when I saw guilt as an ego trip, I developed this technique of wagging the finger at Mara. Oh, Mara, I see you. And it was very free. Yeah, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna get hooked by this guilt. But there was regret and remorse, and then I dealt with that. Thank you. This next person writes, how does one thrive in a community of people who do not practice and living our harmonious life with others while continuing to practice without feeling isolated? Um, I, it doesn't need to be a problem. You know, if <laughs> it doesn't need to be a problem, so don't make it a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody has their own interests and their own 
you know, how they want to spend their time and what they want to do. I think, I think the more important question or consideration would be in the community or family, you know, whatever, whatever uh, group of people one is involved in, whether there's just a basic support for us doing what we want to do, you know, kind of a respect for, okay, if you want, you know, if you're the only one who's meditating and other people are not interested in it, that's fine. But, but, you know, are they, are they being supportive for your interests? just as you can be supportive for their interests. Um, and it may be that once they see the glorious transformation of your life, that they might be uh, inspired to learn about it a little bit. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I'd be very careful about thinking that one needs everyone's, you know, in one's circle to be doing the same thing that we're doing. Because, you know, it's nice when that happens, but I don't think it's necessary. Okay, maybe one last question. Um, we actually have quite a few questions um, come in um, about when are you teaching again in person <laughs> <laughs> or um, online? Uh, <laughs> Uh, good question. <laughs> when you find out, let me know. <laughs> um, I have no, there's nothing right now scheduled. Um, I do a lot of um, kind of one-off Zoom calls with um, uh, different sanghas, you know, and so, uh, but those are generally for, you know, for that particular sangha and it can be worldwide. Um, yeah, so, but keep posted. For, um, over the winter, I, I do a, a long self-retreat every winter, uh, but it's usually in, uh, for a few months in January, February, and March. But then in the spring and summer and fall, I'll probably be doing more, some more online stuff. Um, so, you know, you can just check, check the IMS schedule. One question, it builds on that a little bit and I did, had wanted to get to it. There were quite a few questions that you had pre-submitted from people who wanted to know how to find a teacher, that they may live in an area where there's not, you know, a teacher available. Um, so this is, a, this is a question that comes up often. I think what's um, best, and it's it's really possible these days, you know, so much is offered online. What I think is helpful is to do a little exploration uh, just through listening to talks. You know, I, most of you probably know Dharma Seed. Uh, that has, I don't know, probably thousands of talks, you know, from different teachers. So just to explore a little bit different teachers and see who you resonate with or, you know, a few that you might resonate with in particular. And then you could either look for any offerings, online offerings they may be giving because a lot of teachers now are doing stuff online. 
or some teachers, not everyone, uh, but some are willing to actually engage in one-on-one -on -one interviews with people. So, you know, if there's a teacher that you particularly resonate with um, and maybe do some online retreats with them or different kinds of programs, um, you could reach out and just, you know, inquire whether, whether they do one-on-one -on -one kind of interviews or not. Um, so that, that's what I would suggest. Um, I think even when one is living in a more isolated place, thanks to, <laughs> thanks to Zoom, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot being offered. Yeah, and, and might be worth, might be worth exploring that. Okay. I really uh, appreciate your questions because I give it, you know, I spent a fair amount of time going through them and reflecting on them. And so I learned a lot uh, from it. And so I really appreciate, uh, appreciate receiving them all. And I hope uh, some of the responses were helpful. Um, so why don't we uh, just sit for a couple of minutes. One last thought that came in the sitting, <laughs> in that one minute sitting. Um, I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of questions, uh, specifically about different different uh, elements of the practice. Um, as you know, I've been teaching a long time, have a ton of talks on Dharma Seed, on a whole range of topics. And so if there was something that were coming up, you know, how to work with sleepiness or, or doubt or so many things, so many different topics, you could go on Dharma Seed under my talks or any, any other teacher uh, by subject. And then you would get a full talk on whatever, whatever topic is of interest to you. So that's a resource that you could really avail yourselves of. Um, yeah. So thank you all. This has really been a pleasure and we'll pick up next year. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.